I'm just going to get started. I'm going to apologize on the front end. If I look exhausted, it's because I am. <laughs> we have, uh, in the last three weeks, we've dealt with a um, pretty hairy situation that's not included in the presentation. Uh, there was a riot that was, had been a peaceful protest, and it rapidly deteriorated into a riot when workers closed down the Pan American to try to finally bring attention within Nicaragua to the issue. The economic situation is as such that the major, the, the head oligarchy family that kind of owns the country, it's the largest privately held financial group in Central America in its poorest country. They're known as the Payloss Group. And they've just really done their best to obscure the truth behind this epidemic. Uh, they'll, take, they'll take half truths, they'll do outright lies. And the government has been very pro Payloss Group from the beginning of the new Sandinista regime. And that's a very different result than what you might have thought when Daniel Ortega took power again in uh, Nicaragua. And they're very close. And so this protest was because Social Security isn't paying people work benefits, even though the disease is recognized as a chronic disease brought on by work, occupational. And they've changed the law in the last two years to make it almost impossible to qualify. Uh, like, for instance, you have to work the equivalent of four harvests, and many people are getting sick within two harvests, and they fire people when they're sick, so you can't qualify then for the Social Security. And your last harvest, you have to work about 26 weeks, but the harvest is only 24 weeks long. So they've basically made it impossible to jump through those hoops. And the reason they have is the IMF, they want a loan from the IMF, the government, and the government can't get that loan with the current docket they have on the social security rolls. There's so many people that are sick, it would bankrupt the country. That's how big the epidemic is. And for the company, they obviously don't want to pay into the social security because they have to pay half in or third in, it's third from the worker, third from the corp, and third from the, com or from the government. So it's this huge issue. The riot blew up, and there were major reprisals from the police, and Tom was actually attacked by the police, they, and he got his camera back because community members came into the scuffle and got his camera back and got him pulled out of the riot. And then there were reprisals the next night, that following night, and they went in and they just kind of indiscriminately beat people, and then pointedly beat some people who were children of some of the protesters, and they arrested people and made them sign a sheet that said they wouldn't report the abuses to the Human Rights Commission in Nicaragua. And then they went kind of insane and started accusing me of being a narco-trafficker and in the CIA. But my favorite was that I'm a secret agent from the petroleum industry and I'm trying to disrupt biofuel markets, which is insane because every single oil company has major biofuel interests. The largest holder of biofuels in the world is Shell in Brazil with a co-farm with the Brazilian government. So we've been dealing with that for three weeks. We've been in meetings with the Department of Labor, in meetings with the State Department, meetings with, um, it was on NPR for a 20-minute interview last Thursday. So we've had a lot of support, but it's just been kind of like 21 days straight. So I just want to apologize up front if I seem to like ramble off somewhere. Do you want someone to do this? <laughs> Be like, yo, guy, come back. Because weariness is, that, that, I think that's what happens for me, is I get a little bit off point. I'm usually pretty on point, but when you're tired, you know, but that's what they want. Like when you accuse people of being narco-traffickers in an incredibly um, draconian country like Nicaragua as far as narco rules go, I mean, you, you go to prison and you don't come back in that country and, you know, it puts the screws on and that's what they want. They want to put the screws on. So the nature of the epidemic we're dealing with is we are fairly certain it's multi-causal, but leptospirosis was looked into with the CDC and Boston University, and it was ruled that it's likely not due to leptospirosis. 
So what we're dealing with is an environmental and occupational. And so, I mean, can anybody name me an environmental epidemic in the United States right now uh, that might be caused in part due to sugar intake? Right. And, and those two things are very closely linked. And those provide a more traditional epidemic of chronic kidney disease. What we're looking at is a type of chronic kidney disease that's due to occupational reasons, and you're going to see that it's actually not at all traditional CKD. The damage happens in a different part of the kidney, as a different drivers. But the interesting link here is sugar is bad for the people that produce it. It's bad while they consume it as well, but for different reasons. And it's bad for us on the end game as well. So there's a direct bridge with sugar for the consumer and the, and the guys that are working to make it. So this is how we started in 08. I was making a documentary about bananas and kind of the structural failures with the banana industry with Dolan Chiquita. I have been an investigator for Amnesty International on the paramilitary cases. Have, have you guys heard about those at all? So Dolan Chiquita are both under investigation by the US Justice Department and continue to be um, for paying off paramilitaries in Colombia. And they did that to get rid of labor issues they were having. Chiquita is currently on trial for it in Florida, and that goes on. So I worked for Amnesty on that and a couple lawsuits. And I am now, and I found about this epidemic while in Nicaragua, and it was so severe I shelved the banana film, and nobody was doing anything about this. And the local researchers at the lab there, it's called CISTA, the Center for the Investigation of uh, Health and the Environment, and the, um, the local community said, you know, we'd really appreciate it if you brought more attention to this issue because nobody's doing a thing. The government's not working on it. The company's being duplicitous about it. And we thought we discovered this little tiny epidemic in Nicaragua. And as you'll see, it's actually much bigger than that. So I want to introduce the first video. This is the first video Tom did. And this really gets to the heart of why we do what we do and why we've taken an integrated approach with labor and human rights issues that are, we believe are directly relinked to pushing the disease. So that's why we do what we do. Because you hear a lot of stuff in the US and people are in such situations like, why don't they get another job? There is no other job. It's a monoculture. That's the job that's available. There's no bootstraps in that scenario. <laughs> he works plenty hard, works seven days a week, 10 to 12 hours a day. And by 15 years old, he's dying of a, an emergent epidemic that nobody's addressing. And the World Health Organization has just now started to acknowledge as an epidemic in the last two years. So that's what's motivated me. That's why I stayed in Nicaragua. That's why I work with the group I work with. That's why I don't work with Boston University. And we'll talk about that later in the World Bank on this issue. That's why I've taken a much broader approach from both grassroots and from multiple research partners. And I'm working our way up. And we've supported the local research group in Nicaragua because the goal is to strengthen them so they can have the capabilities to deal with this in the future. As far as qualifications, everybody in that research group is probably more qualified than their counterparts at BU. They all were educated for the PhDs and their MDs at Karolinska in Sweden, which is one of the greatest. And then part of that deal was they went to Karolinska and they had to come back to their home countries. So they understand the culture, they speak the language, and they have this cutting edge you know, training that's you know, really doesn't have much of an equal. You know, you maybe John Hopkins or, you know, this is probably a great school as well, but I mean, it's one of the best. And so I thought, well, we need to support that local group and we need to build it up and build a network to support them internationally because we do lack some of the equipment for testing. You know, that you do lack in the developing world. And, and work with partners who have better labs maybe 
but for the field research, I wanted to work with them. And they have a really integrated approach that includes law and public relations and the rest, so it was a nice fit. But I want to talk about the differences of the disease. This comes from the Center for Public Integrity, and their story on this epidemic just won the Press Association's Public Service Award yesterday, two days ago. They won. So they did a great story. I'm good friends with the writer. He got a grant from the Pulitzer Foundation, and uh, CPI did this, and then we were on BBC and The World on NPR, and AP picked it up, and they did great work. So they did this really nice info infographic. So if you look at like the traditional causes of CKD, I mean, I'm pretty sure all of you are, are quite familiar with it, right, in, given the background everybody has here. It usually happens in older people. The damage happens at the front end of the tube as, as the blood goes into the kidney. And your risk factors are what? I mean, I don't need to tell you guys, you know them, right? Diabetes, hypertension, possibly genetics, obesity. And one of the main indicators you can see are proteins in the urine are quite high. What we're looking at here is through the epidemiology and the, and the research we've done, is we're, look, we're looking at working age males. When we've done biopsies, the damage is happening here, which is consistent with environmental exposure and dehydration for acute kidney injury, and then acute kidney, kidney injury happening seven days a week for a couple of years and those kind of conditions. If you are exposed to a contaminant, dehydration through the osmolarity is gonna do what? It's gonna cause more damage, it's gonna be exacerbated. So that's why we've been so focused on the work practices because we feel if we can get at that primary cause and change the work practices and change the dehydration aspect and get them proper hydration and proper breaks so their bodies can actually take in the water, then you can worry about the environmental stuff secondly. Because when we look at mortality data, older women do get sick, but like in their 50s and 60s. And women have damage in like stage one and two, but it's the men who are dying in their 20s and 30s and have damage in the stage three to five, because there's five stages of kidney disease. So if we can, fix the labor practices, the data supports the idea that you could not add years onto people's lives, decades onto their lives. And so instead of like trying to get all the multi-causal variants, we're not that interested in that, our group. Our group is like, how do we get these guys not dead? How do we protect the people in the fields? And then we can work on the entire ideology. But I mean, as a public health organization, our goal is to ensure public health. And if you can focus on that primary cause and not get distracted by like every single aspect, then you can save people immediately. And then, and then, yes, continue that important work to understand what led to this completely. But the other interesting thing is there's no proteins. So you're really dealing with a totally, if, if I'm not mistaken, a totally new disease that manifests itself in a similar way. But it's not the same disease. And when we started, we thought we were in this little community called the Isle of Widows in Nicaragua. And what we found is we did research and continued funding different prevalence studies, which are published in the American Journal of Kidney Disease. We start seeing it, uh, anecdotal reports in Veracruz, Mexico, verified in El Salvador, verified in Honduras, verified in Guatemala, verified in Panama, verified in Costa Rica, all along the Pacific Rim, and then obviously the exception in Veracruz, and in sugarcane communities predominantly. And mining was the other one where we saw it. Salt mining and gold mining, but not in the highlands for either, mining or agriculture, all in the hot lowlands. Again, the same crappy chemicals and, and arsenic exist in mining in the highlands, and the same paraquat and 2,4-D and nephrotoxins exist in agriculture in the highlands. So again, why do we focus on the work practices? Because there's got to be that interaction between the dehydration, because only in the hot volcanic lowlands are we seeing this disease. And we're also getting reports from Colombia and Ecuador. There's a related epidemic, we don't know if it's the same thing, in the northwestern Australia, Sri Lanka and India, in, in dry rice and sugarcane. 
which dry rice is also very heavy labor, and then Egypt in their cane area. So we don't know if those are the same things because the, where we have not seen cadmium or arsenic, they have picked it up in Sri Lanka and India. So it could still be that interaction of dehydration and environmental components, but our environmental components might be quite different because we aren't seeing cadmium or arsenic. So we don't want to say they're the same epidemic, the same cause, but they seem to be related. There's a lot of similarities. So that, that we found between three years ago and now that this epidemic is global. <laughs> so it's pretty incredible. The cycle of death is really what we're trying to interrupt. We're trying to break this. So that's why we're taking not just an epidemiological approach, we're also taking this human rights and social approach. So you've got an unskilled workforce, they're paid low wages, they don't have access to proper medical care, they don't have access to proper diet, and then you know, they're out there in these dangerous conditions. Obviously, a lot of them are working as adolescents under age, which puts further stress on their body. They get the CKDU diagnosis from the company because they test everybody at the beginning and the end of the harvest. They get fired, they go to a subcontractor which takes them out of social security, so you have that not to rely on any longer. And then they work with the subcontractor. They work usually in worse conditions under the subcontractor. The disease is accelerated. They die early. The children again leave to go work for the dead or dying parent, and it all starts again. But what's happening now is kids are getting sick younger because they're entering the workforce younger because the fathers are getting sick in their 40s. Kids start working in their teens, and by the time they're 25, they're in the terminal stages of the disease. So it's totally having a devastating effect on the cultural aspects of these communities as well. And women are now hitting the fields. And now we're seeing women in stage two through five for the first time. And has anybody worked in Latin America? Just throw their hands up. That's an incredible social change, right? Like what campesino community is sending women with a pilero, a machete, into the cane fields? Like this is incredibly new. For this area of Nicaragua, this was unheard of. You might have had women cutting seed, but certainly not the burnt cane. That labor, that labor is just considered like that was men's work, that's that. And the need is so great for labor that women are now going to replace their, their men in the field. So the conditions at work are pretty brutal. The planting, the burning, the cutting, the collection, all of it is done in, in degrees between 39 degrees Celsius and 42 degrees Celsius. And then you also have to deal with the fact that they've burned the field and you're dealing with the radiant heat and the environmental heat, the ambient heat. So you deal with the temperature, the dehydration is an issue because they don't have access to the water as they work. So they'll cut a line, you know, they're swinging that machete, it's like over 100 degrees, they have to cut a line of it. By the time they hit that line at, the, at high noon, they're thirsty halfway through, they don't have access to the water, they can't stop because they're paid by part. They're paid under a dollar by ton. So they cut up to 10 tons a day. They used to cut about eight tons a day. But the pay hasn't gone up, but the inflation has, and they're paid in Cordobas, and that value's gone down against the dollar. So inflation's through the roof. So they're cutting more. The temperature's gone up in the last 20 years. Cane has doubled in the region because of the biofuel market and the collapse of the cotton market. And so you have all these things working together to cre create more work. It's hotter, longer hours for higher quotas, and more of it. And if there's an environmental component, bio bioaccumulation is probably happening in the food sources and in what they're eating. So by the time they're thirsty, they're already getting acute kidney injury. So by the time they get the water, and they might be able to drink the 18 liters a day that the company recommends, but it's, it's not like the human body's a sponge, right, that you can just dry out and refill and dry out and refill. Well, if it's been dried out and you continue working, you're, pe you're literally taking a chunk out of that sponge. You know, this is a, probably a metaphor I don't need to make for 
this audience, but it's handy if you're trying to explain it to somebody who doesn't have any medical background. And so you might be reinflating that sponge, but you're, doing, you're damaging it every time you deflate it. And if this is happening seven days a week, over a year, that repeated ac acute damage is leading to chronic disease. Now this used to be just theory. We just finished up lab work with Colorado University with Richard Johnson, he's one of the best nephrologists in the country. Take a look at his work, incredible guy. And what used to be theory is now, it's one of the most black and white studies I've ever read. I might be biased, I'm a middle author on it. So, so full disclosure on that. And the hours are long. I mean, if anyone's worked in Latin America, you've heard how agricultural workers work even here, you're talking eight to 12 hours a day, seven days a week and we talked about how much they're losing a day. So it's not just about replacing the water, it's having access to the water and having breaks in shade. Basically, if you just like followed the basic OSHA recommendations for field workers in the US, which are literally take a break every 15 minutes when it's over 90 degrees, do it under a tent, drink water when you're thirsty, don't wait until you're, or before you're thirsty, don't wait till you're thirsty, and these like very clear rules. We believe if they just followed that, you'd probably mitigate a huge amount of the damage. So let's talk about prevalence. This is from a local study that will be part of, oops, that we did in La Isla. And this will be published alongside the field work we're doing in tandem with the, uh, with the lab work we're doing with UNAM Mexico and Colorado University and Karolinska. So worldwide, we know CKD is on the rise, right? It's, it's a little under 10% in some areas, much lower in others. So it's like, actually, that should be less than that little full man there. But in La Isla, we're dealing with 68% prevalence among men. And this is unheard of. 68% of these guys have stage one through five. One third of those guys have stage two to five. They're terminally ill by US standards, but in the re reality that they're living in, in Nicaragua, those guys with stage one and two are going to die. There's completely inadequate access to me medicine and health. And these are the stages of the disease. Stage one and two, you can stabilize with activity and diet changes. It used to be believed you could reverse the damage, um, but it can't, you can stabilize it. But by stage three, it will become progressive. It's too late to stabilize. So you either need dialysis or transplant. Um, what happens with the disease? This is kind of a light list. This is what happens to us when we have access to pain management, when we have access to treatment. Uh, for these guys, it's much more painful and drawn out. And I always like to show this reality. Like in the US, again, this, this crowd, this is a different, different group. You guys understand the severity of the disease. But a lot of people don't think about how serious chronic kidney disease is. And even if you look at the US statistics, it's not a pretty picture. Five years on dialysis and you only have like just over a third survival rate. It's incredibly expensive. And your life is completely disrupted, right? You're on dialysis three to four times a week. For these guys, you don't really have an access to dialysis, and the dialysis that exists is not adequate, and we'll talk about that. The average income, you certainly can't pay for it privately. The social security system has failed them because they're cut out of the system because they're fired before they can qualify for an occupational disease. And basically, when you get diagnosed, it's a death sentence, and they've accepted that. So on a social level, it's been very difficult to watch entire communities just say, well, all there is is the cane, this is all we can do. And when you look at the treatment option, right, like our main focus is prevention, because when something is this out of control, we don't really think treatments should be the main focus, but you should treat the people that are ill, of course. So Baxter, the big US company that supplies 
dialysis equipment, gives dialysis machines, peritoneal dialysis, that's one of the implant here, to the Nicaraguan government. They have only three machines in the most affected department. We are working with the head of the program with the health ministry. He said if they had 100 machines, it wouldn't be enough, and that focusing on treatment is bonkers, his quote. Um, and the other problem is that the conditions just don't exist. It's so bad that the Baxter nurses that work for Baxter came to us as whistleblowers with jump drives and totally broke patient confidentiality, but they showed us the failure rate. You have a 50% failure rate under this home dialysis and the peritoneal dialysis program, mostly due to migrating catheters because the surgeon isn't qualified to put in the catheters from Baxter. Other thing is like equipment's disappearing and being sold on the black market. They're sure of this because it's just missing from their data. And there is a 23 to 26% infection rate of a fungal infection. And usually the process for a fungal infection when on peritoneal dialysis is you take out the catheter immediately because fungal infections are next to impossible to treat. You put them on hemodialysis for three weeks and then you, you figure out is this effective to put them back on PD for cost saving to the state and to the client. That's not an option, there is no hemodialysis. So these guys are out of luck. So they try to treat the fungal infection, but what's happening is just this total system failure. There's only 14 nephrologists in, the, in this country, and that's kind of a good baseline number to think about when you're thinking the rest of Central America. Nephrology is totally underserved. Most of the countries don't have nephrology programs. Nicaragua certainly doesn't, so you have to go to Guatemala or Mexico or Cuba to get your degree and then come back. So this whole program is a mess. Baxter was going to shut it down in December. For some reason, they didn't. We're trying to figure out why. And we're finishing out the data on, on you know, what the exact numbers are on the failure rate, but it looks like about 50%. And there's more people dying in the program of the disease, of the treatment, or complications due to treatment, than of the disease itself by year. So it's completely ineffective. It's kind of a nightmare scenario. And the reason they're getting fungal infections, we believe, is they're not doing cultures when people come in with the viral infection, or, the, or I'm sorry, the bacterial infection. And they don't do the proper culture to diagnose with the correct antibiotic. And they give a broad spectrum antibiotic. And that lowers the defense of the body in general and then allows the fungal infection to come in. It's just a very, very sad situation. On the positive note is the Baxter nurses have done a great job. <laughs> They've really trained these guys how to do this. This really doesn't fall to them. They've done a wonderful job. And if a family has enough money, they can build the proper clean room. The family can be trained properly on how to help with the home dialysis. The Baxter nurse can stop by once a week to make sure everything's in check. And maybe this could work, you know, if these other issues were addressed. But the problem is it's just not a reality. I mean, you saw how most of these families have to store this stuff in these hot, dusty conditions in Nicaragua. Like, that's not ideal. And then this certainly isn't ideal. This guy is supposedly has a clean room. It's not clean at all. And then the, uh, I'm going to say desechos, the waste. <laughs> Spanglish happening in my brain right now. But the waste is just disposed in the field from the dialysis. So there's an environmental component that's a big problem as well. So what we want to do is try to address this and make it less of a, of a terrible situation. But as it stands now, you're looking at a terminal disease, not a chronic disease. Uh, mortality data, everybody always wants to know that. This is with our work with Mount Sinai from last summer. In the last 10 years, 46% of the deaths in Chichigalpa were due to CKD. 75% of the men of like main working age, 35 to 55, was CKD. This is completely out of control, not being addressed properly by either PAHO or the local governments. And in the last five years, the disease has almost doubled. 
We think there's a couple reasons for that. One is the inflation issue I said. We think the men are working harder and for longer under pressure from the company, but also self-imposed pressure to meet their economic needs. But the other issue is the company has long blamed it on alcoholism and you name it. Like whatever they can blame on the worker, they'll blame on the worker. Now we've shown that there is no correlation in the interviews we've done and compared it with the data. But in the last five years, they started giving hydration packets despite the fact they deny there's anything wrong with their work practices. So they're giving these hydration practices or packets, but they have too much sugar in them. And some of the work we've done with Richard Johnson shows that if you take in sugar while under this dehydrated state, there's a new pathway that he's identified and it activates on an enzyme called fructokinase. And what it happens is you get an unequal ATP exchange and oxidization happens inside the tube of the kidney. And the kidney is not only eviscerated from the, just the dehydration, but also this, this metabolism. And this is really exciting. This is like brand new science. And he discovered it looking at overweight diabetics at type 2 with CKD that were drinking too much Coca-Cola and causing this damage slowly over time. And so when he heard about what was happening to us, he's like, well, do these guys drink soda to rehydrate? And I said, well, not really, but they give them these sugar packets, and they also eat cane directly. And of course, sucrose becomes fructose and glucose. And then human beings do this really weird thing when we're under dehydration, where we turn glucose to sorbitol into fructose. <laughs> so no matter what, when you're dehydrated, and we're the only mammal that does that, that we know of, um, no matter when we're dehydrated, like the last thing you should be giving these guys is a sugar-laden drink. This is probably accelerating the disease, not helping them. So to confront all this, here's our three pillars. Uh, we talked about it at the beginning. Uh, the one I'm most passionate about is engaging the media. That's what I've been the best at in building our research network. So now, we're, like I said, we're working with everybody from Karolinska to, uh, <clears throat> to Unan, Mexico, and Unan, Leon. And I want to show this next video that kind of shows the research we've been doing with Mount Sinai and other groups, and also kind of the economic situation reality. And if you have a question, just shoot up your hand during the talk. Don't wait. This won't bother me. But the point of this one is you talk to these people, you see the research being done, you see us working at Mount Sinai, you see what we're doing to support that research. And then you also see us working at the local university. And so you got Unan Leon forming a relationship with Mount Sinai. And like, that's what we want, because Mount Sinai is one of the greatest occupational you know, health schools in the world, and like, we want that kind of relationship, where it's a collaborative relationship and not a top-down one. And like, to me, that is what is going to change the dynamic down there. It's like a worldwide approach, but one that's led by the knowledge that's gained on the ground. And what is really sad is, is the kid who we follow through the video is we think he's healthy by the end of the video. He gets his test back, and he's okay. We find out three months later, after you work three more months in the fields, he's sick as well. You know, and this woman has already lost, his mother has already lost his father, and she's got three sons that are all destined for the cane. And she says at the end, like, that's, that's all there is. There's nothing else for these guys. How long have they been growing sugarcane in this area? Uh, over 100 years at the Ingenio. For, for rum, but you have seen a massive jump since the 90s. Cotton, the cotton industry collapsed, and the last five years you've seen it double. It's gone from 35,000 hectares in kind of a small scale industry to 72,000 hectares, and now they're doing biofuel, rum, sugar, and other bi uh, biomedical products through sugar that they're working on. But was this a problem before? Yes. When we're looking at mortality data, you start seeing it in, in 30 years ago in Nicaragua and some of these other countries. But in the 80s, there's no mortality data. Because in the 80s, Central America was 
on fire. <laughs> Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua, and the, the industry is much smaller. Frankly, and this is the jaded side of me, nobody was asking. Nobody cared. Before I came in five years ago, and this is the tragedy of it, that some white kid has to come down and see this going on to raise this into the international media, I mean, it's borderline offensive because these people have been dying like this for two decades and there was no mortality data. But a few things have gotten worse. The quotas have gone up, inflation's gone up, they've introduced the sugars dehydration, the, the industry's doubled, and the average temperature's gone up by over a degree. So it was happening before we think, and it was happening with the cotton harvesters as well, but lower levels, and you kind of just see this direct correlation between how hot and how hard the work is and the prevalence. But it's terrible because before 92, there's like almost no extant mortality data on it. Who owns the sugarcane production? The, t the big one in Central America is Ponte Leon. And they, they actually, they aren't owned by, they own Tate and Lyle in Britain, which is like the big sh European importer. They've gotten so big and powerful. And the local ones are just kind of the worst actors, actually, because Pantaleon, I think, actually wants to limit their liability in a more intelligent way and get in front of the train or get on the train instead of getting hit by the incoming liability train. Um, and they have more interest internationally, so they have to protect those. The big problem is this huge conglomerate in Nicaragua, the Palos Group, who kind of behaves like an adolescent who's never been told to behave. They just take data, they manipulate it, and we'll talk about that shortly. And they're the ones that we focus on because their practices are the worst, but as researchers are great to focus on because their practices are so bad, we get the best data. You see the most extreme prevalence, you see the most extremely bad work treatment, and it's a nice baseline to use and, and work from there up. But it's the Pelas group, P-E-L-L-A-S, and they're Italian, so it's a hard L, and so they, the, 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 like, it's not Pelas, it's Pelas. They came in from, um, I think, southern Italy in about 150 years ago. They started in gold mining and went to sugar. So the causes we're looking at, obviously genetic predisposition might come in, but what we're really focusing on is this, the interaction between dehydration and environmental toxin. And I think we've talked enough about that. Everybody's clear on our thinking there. But we, we want to start talking about the macro level causes too, because that's what I'm really interested in, is like what structural issues are contributing to this disease. Um, you have this major group, Payless Group, main employer in the region, no other options really. They handle most of the sugar exporting. They do much more than 46%. This is from five years ago before they doubled. Um, they become a huge supplier of ethanol when it's convenient. So they got this loan from the World Bank and the IFC, the International Finance Corporation, to produce ethanol. But they're quite savvy. When the sugar market, like right now, is just through the roof, uh, it's the highest it's been in years, they don't produce ethanol because it's too expensive. They make enough money just selling sugar which is driving the Europeans absolutely batty because they thought they had this, like, this ethanol source to meet their ethanol marks that they wanted to hit, but they can't because this company's like, why would I produce ethanol? It's so much better just to sell rum and sugar right now. Uh, what's interesting and what we really want to get an economist on this for is remember five years ago when they started investigating oil speculation and the, and the guys up at Capitol Hill actually did their job a bit and started really holding them to task in hearings the last two years? And they stopped oil speculation because they knew their heads were gonna roll if they kept it up. But if they got out of it soon enough, they'd be fine. That speculation has shot over to the commodity market, especially sugar. Sugar prices have almost doubled in the last five years. And these are like direct quotes from the Wall Street Journal articles that the speculators are like, well, I mean, nobody pays attention to sugar. So it's a perfect place for speculation. And these guys love that volatility as long as it's going up. 
So we want to look at that and see if there's a link as well. The other issue is these guys are surrounded. These are the communities we work in, and this is in no way unique. Can you speak to that last point about claiming to be Oh, we're going there for sure. <laughs> yeah, so the company claims to be socially responsible, and that's like this big thing we always hear about, our social, res social responsibility initiatives. And I think some companies mean it. I think some, people's, some companies actually want to comport themselves in a better, healthier way. And then I think some are really cynical, like the Payless Group, and they look at it as nothing more but marketing. And it's the only thing they respond to. When we put the screws on them about their claims versus their reality, which is what we're doing at the compliance study, is looking at what are the extant laws, locally and internationally, what are their corporate claims, what certifications do they have, are they following any of it? And what we're finding is no, not at all. And the woman heading that up is our, our attorney. She's Harvard Law. She's incredible. And we are working on it with the Department of Labor. And hopefully we can put some screws on them through CAFTA. And there's a new European trade um, agreement that actually supposedly focuses on worker, workers' rights. And I think this, this kind of work is so important because often certifications that we rely on to make purchases, like the Rainforest Alliance, are wanting. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> it's, they're incredibly um, duplicitous at their worst or just ineffective at the best. So, you know, these guys are surrounded by this bad actor. This is just the cane they own directly and they obviously subcontract much more. This is just what they own as of two years ago. We got this from an inside source of the company. And then we use some GIS and these are the communities. So they're totally surrounded. There's little other option. And if there is environmental exposure, due to the practices on the farms, then clearly their water table is going to be a problem, if it is pesticides or something like that. So, you know, these are the claims they make. They said they don't burn fields or they only do it at night. They absolutely burn the fields whenever possible. They're supposed to wait 24 hours if they do burn a field uh, for the processing of the cane. They usually send the guys in immediately after the burn, so they're dealing with the radiant heat as well as the ambient heat. Uh, they say they have independent unions. Anytime anybody's tried to form an independent union, they've been fired. That has happened over the last 10 years. In fact, when we went to BP with our concerns about the decision so they were making and buying biofuel from this company, and BP was a little nervous after that whole spill in the Gulf, uh, they were like, oh, wow, well, we shouldn't do that, should we? And then the company sent the union people over to BP to tell them everything was fine. It's pretty incredible. Um, they say they don't use pesticides. We have plenty of videos of them spraying everything from chloropyrifis to 2,4-D. Um, the six-hour workday is eight to 12 hours. I think the most jaded thing I've seen is reforestation. So reforestation is when you try to recreate an ecosystem, right? They're doing tree farming, for-profit tree farming. They burn eucalyptus for power for their grid that they then sell to the power company in Nicaragua, which they own 15% of. And they also grow teak, which they'll sell, do for sale. Neither of these things are considered reforestation. The worst thing is they get kids to do the replanting, and these are the kids in the poorest communities whose fathers are dying of the disease, and then they get these kids to volunteer like on Earth Day to plant the trees for their for-profit farm. So there's a level of cynicism going on at that company that I've never seen, and I've worked on cases with Chevron, Dole, Chiquita, I mean some pretty thuggy corporations out there, and these guys really take the cake. I've never seen anything like it. Their security apparatus is extremely aggressive. Often people will try to avoid working on the fields and look for scrap metal on the farm to take because it's an old ingenio sugar processing plant. And the kids have been raped by security as an intimidation tactic. They've been shot and killed. Uh, there's been three of those instances. 
And the company always writes it off and goes, oh, it's the security company's fault, which they own. So it's, it's incredible, the system of control. So what we see, and the reason we're doing the compliance study, is this disconnect. 13-year-old kid working in the fields, and the shirts the, hand, you know, the company hands out that says, I protect the earth and I protect the life, reforestation project. So this is what really gets me, is this kind of level of duplicity. And on a macro level, beyond the company, is you have these kind of pseudo-solutions. So this all got so out of hand in 2007 that the IFC had a complaint made against the International Finance Corporation. And what happened was the company got a loan from the bank, the International Finance Corporation, to build biofuel plants. And then at Socha Vida was this community group that helped bring the complaint. They all came to the table, that sounds great, and they had the Compliance Advisory Ombudsman and Boston University was brought in to do the study. They got their financing from Grupo Pelas and the World Bank, and what they found was no correlation that they could specify between the work and the disease despite the peer-reviewed and published articles and other journals that had showed there clearly is a correlation. Asocha Vida was then bought off, and now they have food stipends that they got through this process, and they have um, housing, and now anybody who works with independent researchers, anybody who talks to the international media, loses those food stipends, loses a chance for housing, and will lose their job or the family member will lose their job. So this formerly independent group that I used to work with has been completely compromised, and we have it all on tape. We have it on audio tape and videotape, and it's really awful because the leader of the organization is on dialysis. He's on hemodialysis, and the company's paying it for it for him at a private clinic. It is mind-blowing. The IFC, for its part, put out this video. If you want a good laugh, go on YouTube and look up the IFC, Sweet Success, Chichigalpa, talking about the great success they had through the Compliance Advisory Ombudsman. Boston University, for its part, we've formed this big research consortium of all these, this multi-tier research consortium are under an enormous amount of pressure by other researchers saying, what were you thinking? Why did you do this? And none of us think they're, they're corrupt. We think they made a very dangerous gamble. They knew this company was not to be trusted, but they deeply felt they could push the ball forward with research by taking the money. And they thought they'd get more money if they played ball and didn't like, go after the company too hard. But what happened is as soon as they published a report that was milquetoast about correlation, both the IFC and the Grupo Payless cut the funding. And it's a really unfortunate situation. It has major ramifications, obviously. Because now the company, I'm sorry, my battery's about to go. Now the company always points to the BU study and goes, there's no correlation between the disease. <laughs> and they're like, you know, it's such a respected university, et cetera, et cetera, which has put greater importance on our work with our research partners. Because it's the only counter-narrative to the bank. And clearly, what does the bank want to do? The bank and Grupo Payless want to protect their investment. The IFC is probably, the International Finance Corporation is probably the most jaded arm of the bank. It's, in, it's incredible because the data says there is. You read the data in that report and it's clear there's progression among the workers during the year. There is um, a clear correlation established, but the summary cast out, so the discussion section. And that's where policy is made because most policymakers can't read the data. They rely on, on the discussion section of any journal publication. But they didn't publish in a journal, they published on the CAO website which means no journal is ever going to let them publish because they publish the results without peer review. It's bonkers. <laughs> it is 
really sad, and it's quite a contentious relationship, sadly, because frankly, I would just like to get independent study and get Boston into the fold because they do have good researchers. But they look at us as an enemy because we've been you know, showing the reality. It's, uh, you learn a lot about psychology, and I think I failed at that early on because I kind of hit him with both gloves, and I probably could have been more inviting, but I was so disgusted by what I was seeing, we left the process because as soon as you start messing with the right to assembly, the right to speak to the press, the right to you know, communicate with who you want and research with who you want, that's where I draw the line. It's a black and white for me. It wasn't for them. So this is about that. So yeah, you know it's bad when they're waiting for gringos. I'm <laughs> sorry for the gallows humor, but that kills me. That like that's what they're waiting for. And when the guy talks about like everybody needs food, they need everything, well, you know, my, my argument is then pay them like human beings. Then they would have access to all of those things and you wouldn't be able to use a food stipend as a weapon against them, which is exactly what's happening. Um, so, you know, why, why are we different? You know, the goal for them was to have a hand washing mechanism and it was almost successful. Uh, most recently, we had this huge cohort study. We had a 160-person tra transversal, and then we had a cohort which is smaller, but all had to do, uh, we had to do it all undercover because you know, they would fire these guys if it was found out. And so 10 workers were fired about a week before the protests. And they were fired because they were giving urine and blood samples. They were told why they were fired by their contractors. And so they were out of the study for a month which obviously hurts our results because we're trying to show progression of the disease over the harvest and if they get a, a break, it's gonna complicate it. Um, and so the company got pressure from Sista. She wrote the, co the company, the World Bank, and Boston's like, you gotta get us a meeting with the company. This is crazy. Company wouldn't agree to meet with me, only Sista, even though we got the funding for the study. So that, that whole triumvirate's allowed to sit together. They only want to talk to Sista, and they're like, you need to get out of those La Isla Foundation videos. Those are hurting us. They're hurting our PR so badly, we can't treat our workers well. Direct quote. And that's when they started accusing me of being a narco-trafficker, of being a, all this insanity. And, we, and they almost bent. The university almost bent, because this company is so powerful. And they got really scared. But we all stuck together. She got on the radio locally. I got the NPR video, or uh, interview through my contacts. The company stalks me like a crazy teenager. And they heard it, and the next day they rehired the time workers. So this is why this works. It takes longer, it's harder, but you get real results. So proactive local and national governments, health ministry in El Salvador is being great about this. There's some infighting there due to ego, but they're dealing with the situation. They're doing big cohort studies with four communities, and it's amazing to watch. You know, NGOs, civil society, consumers working together multiple research partners so you can keep each other in check and make sure the interests aren't being complicated, and the responsible media approach. Deal with BBC, deal with NPR, deal with NBC. Don't go to the right, don't go to the left. Deal with like, as middle as you can find, and international as you can get. And by doing that, I think you can get here. By doing that, you're not solve, they, haven't, they had five years to solve something and millions of dollars, and things are worse. They are not better for that community. So how does it relate to you? We use this stuff. We use the ethanol, we drink the rum, we eat the sugar. So what can you guys do? I mean, what I'd like to see is the kind of relationship we've started with Mount Sinai, with Karolinska, I'd like to develop that here. It's a wonderful place to volunteer. Nicaragua is safe. It's a really interesting place to work. You're working on an emergent epidemic, a new form of a disease. Some of you might want to form a career. <laughs> this is a good way to do it. 
Uh, and you're working with like incredible people. You're working with Harvard, Carolina, Colorado University, uh, Mount Sinai, here. Like it's like what a great thing to focus on. And what we really want to start focusing on, our presentations are going to be revamped, is that link between sugar being bad for the guys who are producing it and the link to the epidemic here, kind of a tale of two epidemics. CKDU traditionally due to consumption of sugar and CKDU due to its production. And I think that's how we can reach people. And like, that's how we can really like connect the dots in people's brains and their heart. And we're working with Ed Cashy, who's a National Geographic photographer. NBC and BBC will post our videos as soon as we post them on their, on their line. We're considered highly credible. And we had to work for that, you know? And, and it's the more of a network we get, the harder it is for the bank and Boston and the IFC to like try to deteriorate what we built, which is credibility. And you know, that's why I really want to form these relationships. And we'd like to make it so we can get Boston into the fold and they don't feel isolated. And that's what we're really trying to do. Because like that current situation makes no sense. It's unhealthy, it's untenable, it's stupid. And it would be great to get them working as part of a team and not look at us as the enemy. We're clearly not the enemy. <laughs> the enemy is the disease. Um, so, I'd like to see if we can make that happen with USC. So, um, on the map that you showed, I didn't see Cuba highlighted. Right. So, are they doing something different? Yeah. Hugely different. Yeah. So, I want to do more of a study, a comparative study on that, because what we know anecdotally is that the Cubans couldn't get their pesticides anymore when, the, when their relationship with Russia fell apart, and or wasn't as strong, they couldn't afford it, when the Union fell apart. Uh, they recognized how difficult the work was manually. They have a much better public health system than any of these countries in Central America. They have nurses and doctors on the fields monitoring these guys' blood pressure and monitoring their water intake. And so the workday is shorter, they get more breaks, and they have medical staff out there. Because one of the things we think is driving the disease more than just the daily degradation is a lot of these guys get heat stroke at the beginning of the harvest when they're getting accustomed to the work, and the end of the harvest when it's just so bloody hot. Because Nicaragua is in this very specific tropic zone in northern Costa Rica and southern El Salvador, where the dry season is six months without, without water. And it's a very specific region on the Pacific coast. And that's where we see the highest prevalence as well. So you get slightly better environmental conditions, but mostly I think it's the work practices. And if there's an exposure situation, they do it organically now, because they can't afford to do it chemically. And uh, organic yields are actually higher than conventional yields in sugarcane now. This is the first year. They're twice as high, four times as high on a well-run farm because they're just exhausting the soil on the, uh, on the conventional products, which is interesting. And the, the harvesting still has to be done by hand? No. Or is it highly mechanized in some It's highly mechanized in most places. Like Brazil, you don't see the disease because it's mostly mechanized. And when they do do it by hand still, like on hilly terrain, they have a tractor go by with a a sun cover. And they didn't, I don't know if they even knew about this disease. I think they just had a different approach to their workforce. I'm not saying the Brazilians are angels at all. Like, it's not the case, but they just did things that was just not as brutal. There's a brutality in Central America that I haven't seen anywhere else as far as work treatment. It's, it's pretty amazing. So, yeah. So what would happen if an NGO raised the funds to support carrying of the water or I mean, supported water trucks yeah. to be in No, I think that'd be amazing if we could get the funding for that. Like the next steps are are twofold for us. We want to find a friendly ingenia, which we think we've identified in El Salvador, actually through Cargill, and uh, and then in Costa Rica, there's one that is privately owned and smaller, but has the problem, and they're worried about it. 
but we want to get into a comparative, like change the work practices, basically follow OSHA, OSHA guidelines with some tweaks, and then follow another group that isn't following that over half the harvest and see what happens. Um, and then also hydration fluids that are based on glucose or based not on fructose and like to help the guys as well. So those are like the two things we're focusing on as a solution, but I think getting out there and having a healthy relationship with that company is unlikely, but I think there's other companies that you kind of do a surround and isolate approach. So I think these guys are crazy. I've never seen anything like it. Like, you know, like I'm a narco trafficker. Like they're not interested in a dialogue. They're interested in like deny and delay. But I think there are companies that are terrified of the legal implications from a pragmatic point of view and want to get in front of this. So that'd be, that'd be good. Yeah, I don't know enough about it. We work with the Sri Lankan um, researchers on it, and they're really convinced it's arsenic and cadmium. There's some evidence to support that. We don't have those indicators, either either through bi biopsy or environmental studies. But there it looks like there's a link between dehydration and uh, cadmium and arsenic. And there's a WHO study that was produced, uh, I think, in the last couple of weeks. I think it's going to publication. Yeah, but I, I, I think that'd be great to get a conference in the States with the Sri Lankan and Indian side. They came to our conference in Costa Rica, but I think we need to have one here. Yeah. Anything else? Does anyone want to come and work with us? Because it's really fun. You know, there's a, there's a group on campus that just got started. It's called GlobeMet. And it, um, it's in 40, about 40 universities. Um, GlobeMet was started by students, mostly pre-med, but it's not just pre-med. Anyhow, it's a super activist organization, and the students that started this organization are here on campus, are connected with an NGO in India right now that GlobeMed hooked them up with. So GlobeMed itself, the, the larger organization, has that organizations mm -hmm, that get affiliated with the organization, and then students then connect yeah. with that organization. So they're going to India this summer they're helping to design a needs assessment for this or I mean, whatever the organization tells them, they respond to those needs. Right. They did a fundraiser here. They expected to get like $300. They raised $3,000. That's outstanding. Really motivated students. Yeah, I mean, so the, the I best relationships we have are like with, with student groups. And, you know, and, pro and a professor's got to take the charge, too, I've noticed. You know, and like with Sinai, it's awesome. We have a stable that comes down every summer now. And, you know, those relationships are key. We don't want for volunteers. It's crazy sometimes. It's like herding cats. But what I want is more qualified volunteers <laughs> who can who can help with the research. Because you know, sometimes you get yeah. these kids that like all they can do is kids club. You know that we do some like community outreach yeah. so people aren't just getting pricked by needles and peeing in cups. You know we have some direct aid work. But um, no, I mean the students that are involved here. Like, that'd be huge. So you might want to get in touch with Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, I'll give that to Alana. She's our head of public health. Yeah, and our staff is pretty incredible. I mean, nobody makes over $500 a month. It doesn't matter if you're Mika or, or Gringo. And uh, we have our lawyers, Harvard Law, worked at the State Department, and uh, Alana's mailman and SEPA, like for international affairs and public health. So, I mean, everybody living in Nicaragua. Yeah, so it's like two Ivy Leaguers making 500 bucks a month. <laughs> like they're, everybody's really committed, which might make I me mean, more just crazy people, but uh, it's pretty, pretty impressive, like how we aren't like the typical NGO that. You know, the gringos all live very comfortably. And now we all live pretty much on the same level. <laughs> it's pretty incredible. Thanks, guys.